Yesterday was a work day. Good to see so many from, from church family out and helping and trimming trees and throwing things away. We had a crisis, though, yesterday. I don't know whether anyone knew our crisis at the workday yesterday. Came to the table to check into the workday, and there's boxes of donuts there. And, and there's some papers around, and one of the boxes, it was the sign was covered a little bit, but it looked like it was going to say, sugar-free donuts. <laughs> this is a crisis. If it's sugar-free, they're not donuts. Right? They're bagels or, or scones or something. They're not donuts. Donuts are supposed to be just full of sugar, full of chocolate. That's how they're satisfying, right? Now, it turns out they weren't sugar-free. I think they were gluten-free, which is fine. But um, as long as it's not sugar-free, why, why would I even think that? Except we love our junk food, don't we? We, we, we love our junk. How many of you have to have a cup of ice cream, a dish of ice cream each evening? I, I see kids holding mom's hands up. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is comfort food. Yeah, we do that. Um, after the kids go to bed, it, it's, it's great. But we, we, we have so many things that we think of as junk food. And today we're going to talk a little bit about junk food and real food. Because the thing about donuts or, or ice cream or whatever, you can't live on those. Some of the college students are here, you can't live on those. It, it won't serve you long term because we need something that actually meets the body's needs, that actually satisfies. This morning we're going to talk about what actually satisfies our spiritual needs because we settle for so many things trying to satisfy holes in our lives and trying to satisfy a God-shaped peace in our heart. And we try to satisfy that with all these other things. And it doesn't work because only one thing satisfies. As we continue our, our, our journey through Isaiah, and we're getting through it, Isaiah 55 this morning, in, in the last few chapters, and we always want to be thinking context, context, context to understand Scripture, we saw Isaiah 53, the servant, in a beautiful description of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice as he takes our sin upon himself and pays for that and imputes his righteousness, gives us his righteousness so we could be seen as righteous before God. And it's the culminating chapter. And then last week, Isaiah 54, we said was the so what chapter. How do God's people respond to his gift of salvation, to this incredible gift of salvation? And we talked about they should respond with singing and with worship and with, with coming to the relationship that God wants to have and has provided with His people that He died to provide. And then we saw the new heavens and the new earth and God wants to bring nations to Himself. And Isaiah 55 then takes this grand view of salvation and the relationship God wants to have with His people in Isaiah 55, if I had to sum up the chapter in one word, it would be come. Come. And it's an invitation now beyond His own people, beyond believers and beyond the Jews. It's an invitation to every human being, every living soul to come to Christ and to accept this gift of salvation and be part of what He's doing. And we see the heart of God in today's passage that doesn't want to limit this salvation just to a, a select few, that, but that wants to offer it to all and have as many people come to the banquet and to the feast and to the wedding feast that will. 
Turn with me to Isaiah 55, and it's a wonderful chapter. Because as he's saying come, he's going to confront things in this world that keep us from coming. And so this morning, if you don't know Christ, I hope this steps on your toes and reveals that there's a better way. And if you do know Christ, I hope this steps on your toes for what idols and what worldliness we've kept in our lives. Isaiah chapter 55. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair right around you. Love for you to grab one of those and follow along. So you can see this is God's Word that we're studying. Not, not Ron's Word or anyone else's, but this is God's Word. In Isaiah 55, it's separated into three paragraphs. And we'll, we'll, our points will come right out of those paragraphs. And verses 1 through 5 is the pers- first paragraph in this first appeal to come. We'll start reading at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And he starts with this word come, and in, in, in verse 1 alone, four times, if you look at your, your verses, your Bible, four times he says come. The very first one, though, is a little bit different word, and it, it really means get up and come. Now, I have almost teenage kids. And every, did someone say scary? <laughs> They're great. But getting up in the morning is not necessarily one of our, our, our biggest strengths at this stage. And so through some sort of mix of ice cubes and ice packs and other ways and other motivate, we get them up, right? But you, you've got to sort of jar someone up in the morning. That's this first word. Come. Get up and come. This is important. And the emphasis here is on coming to the Savior, coming to the King. The very next word is everyone, just in case we're saying, well, this is for Israel, or this is just for believers. This is for everyone. Everyone who thirsts. Everyone who needs God. Every sinner, which is all of us. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. And the image here is, is possibly of a marketplace where they would sell water and they would sell food. And, and this would have been a little bit confusing. What do you mean? If I have no money, how do I buy? How do I eat? And we, we start to see clues that Isaiah is talking about something other than physical water and something other than physical food. Water also was something that was precious to them, right? This is probably written, this was written in, in 700 BC to a people that had just gone through the Assyrian, um, <coughs> the Assyrian um, siege where water was scarce and food was scarce. So they would have understood the cost. They would have understood the value of it. And then we, we've said that this is written by Isaiah for a people 150 years from there that would be in exile in Babylon, Iraq, desert. And, and so water to them was life. And so this would have been, oh yes, we thir- we understand thirst. We understand that without water you die. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. And now it's not just water, but it's this lavish food, this wonderful, satisfying food and drink. And it says without money and without price. It doesn't cost anything. What he's talking here is talking about food and water and really every need we have coming to God with our needs. Coming to God with our spiritual needs. It's an invitation to come to a feast, the banquet. 
and saying that Christ paid for it on the cross. That's Isaiah 53. The servant paid for it. We can come and salvation is free. But yet it might be costly in different ways as we give up self and give up our lives. Think of how many times in Scripture Jesus refers to Himself as either the bread of life or the living water. In John, let me just read some verses out of John for you. The woman at the well, in John 4, you have the woman at the well, and he says, I am living water and, and, and water that will last forever. In John 6, 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God, the Father, has set his seal. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John seven thirty seven through 38 On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus is talking about living water here. The thing that we really need. The things that sustain us and sustain our souls. Forget the cup of water. Living water is so much better. And we see that Jesus is offering to satisfy. Offering to bring that food, that bread of life, to give that living water. Verse 2 goes on to to describe it a little bit more. And a question is, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? And again, using the marketplace metaphor, it's like passing up the water and the bread and we're going to get a PlayStation or something, you know? You can't eat your PlayStation, It doesn't meet any needs. I have young men again, so this is where my mind goes. (laughs) And we're always saying, no, no, food and clothes are better than your video games. And they're like, no, what? How can that be? And God's saying, you are settling for things that don't meet your spiritual needs. You're spending your time, you're spending your energy, you're spending your resources on things that don't satisfy to a people sitting in Babylon wondering if they should go home to Jerusalem because they have food on the table and they have most of their needs met even if it's not completely convenient. And Isaiah is, and, and God is calling them back to Jerusalem which is in shambles and represents work. To them it might be, well, you know what? I can be at least somewhat happy here. The devil I know is better than the devil I don't. And they're wondering whether they should go back. This is a call for them to go back. But it's a call to us to evaluate what are we seeking satisfaction in. Because the verse goes on. He said, okay, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Begin to begin to see what brings true satisfaction. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. And it's a call to say, why are you settling for less? I have rich, fulfilling food, and it's free. So here's the thing. God wants to give us life. He wants to give us living water, the bread of life. He wants to give us satisfaction to live life to the full. The problem isn't that He hasn't made that available. The problem is we won't go to the table. 
We won't do what it takes to be in the Word and to be in relationship with Him to drink that water and to eat that bread. Sometimes we think, well, you know, I have to walk with God. That means I have to give up some things. I have to give up some things I like. Some of my pet sins, some of the things that I want, some of the things that make me happy. And we've lost sight of the fact that God's commands are to give us joy. Why does He command what He commands? Why does He tell me not to cheat on my wife? Not because I should be afraid for my life if I do, because all of you would die. Um, because He's made us, and He says, this is how it works. Glorifying Me is how you will receive the most good. And it's, it's not to make it selfish, but we have to start realizing we have a Father who gives good and heavenly gifts. And His commands are not killjoys. His commands are because this is what works and this is how life works best to the full. And we look at His commands as, oh man, that's just awful things that take away what really satisfies me. It doesn't satisfy you. Point number one, and you probably notice I, I didn't say that. I want to read those two verses before I filled in the blanks there. God is the only one who satisfies. Crave Him instead of the idol of satisfying self. Let me repeat that. God is the only one who satisfies. Crave Him instead of the idol of satisfying self. In each of these paragraphs today, we're going to see some sort of idol that represents the the allure of the world and it represents the draw of sin in our lives. In this case, it's fulfilling our own desires and fulfilling them in our way so we can feel satisfied, so we can feel happy. And we are willing to sacrifice true joy and long-term fulfillment for momentary pleasures. And God is saying, why? Why are you so stupid sometimes? Okay, He doesn't say that. That's me. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? It's just a waste. See, we try to meet these needs and all kinds of other things, but in the end, we have to understand the theology of this. We are made, you and I, in the image of God. And as we were made in the image of God, we were made to be in relationship with God. This is how we were made to be, okay? Like a car is made to transport people and drive on the road. You don't turn it into a boat. We were made to have relationship with God, and to not have that is unfulfilling. It's unsatisfying. It's a God-shaped hole, some authors say, in our hearts. And, and we feel it, right? Before we know God, we feel that God-shaped hole. When we are in sin, when we aren't walking with God, we feel that hole. Because that relationship that we were made to have isn't there. Nothing else fills that hole right. Nothing else satisfies. And, and we can seek all kinds of things. And whether it's, it's seeking after money and fame and power at work and, or having all the stuff and the nicest car and, and the nicest weekend toys or whether it's having perfect kids that are excelling in sports or, or whether it's seeking after relationships or women or men or whatever it is, all those things that we try to fill this hole in our hearts, people do that because they're unhappy. They're unsatisfied. And that becomes an idol that I'm going to fill that however I I can. But it's a God-shaped hole. 
And it doesn't matter what other piece you shove in that hole, it doesn't fit. Remember those balls when, when, when we were kids? Long time ago. It was a long time ago. Well, now that I had kids, we had these balls and they have all the cutout shapes. I think Tupperware made them or something like that. You had the square shape and the circle shape. And, and at, at times you'd get frustrated and you, you could shove, if you found the right shapes, you could shove one piece into another hole, right? Especially if you put it on the ground and jumped up and down on it. You could get that piece in there and then you win. You succeed. But it's still not the right piece for the hole. And even when I did that, I still knew that I didn't really finish the puzzle. Maybe that's just me. This God-shaped longing in our heart is a wonderful thing because it draws us to God. And when He fills it, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's putting the last piece in the puzzle, right? thousand-piece puzzle, that last piece goes in. That's why people hold the last piece and hide it so they can be the one in my family. <laughs> That's what it's like when God fills this hole. The desires of the self, and one, one last thought about desires of self here. The desires of self are never satisfied. There's never enough self ways to satisfy our longings that actually make us full. We hunger for more and we hunger for more. And that's why all those things I mentioned that we use to try to satisfy our longings, that's why you always have to get more and more and more and more. Because the way it works is hungering for more and more. God is the only one who satisfies. Crave Him instead of the idol of satisfying self. And I mentioned there, the, the, idol, the idol here is, is, is looking to our desires, to satisfy our desires, to satiate our desires. But God says, I'm the one that has life. He goes on. Verse 3, incline your ear. Come to me. Do you see the drawing again? Come, listen. Listen to me that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Like, well, what does that mean? And he's referring back to to 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89, most likely. There's, There's several alternatives, but I think the best way to think of this is referring back to the covenant he made with King David. Do you remember the covenant God made with King David? Your line will last forever. On your throne will always, on, on the everlasting throne will be someone from your family. Now, who, who fulfilled that? Jesus, the Messiah. He was, that's why the, the genealogies are so important. He's in the line of David. It's showing that God fulfilled this everlasting covenant. In chapter 54, we saw a covenant of peace. A covenant of hased love, of covenant love. And we see that here. My steadfast, sure love, hased. Uh, in, in New Testament, we call it the agape love. He said, I love David so much that I promised him his line would continue. And I fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. And I am fulfilling it because now you're all sons and daughters of the king that come to him. And so this was a promise that the, the children of Israel would have understood as a beautiful promise of relationship. That God is bringing them into this, this answer to the question of, will David's line continue? Will that covenant be established? He goes on and talking about Jesus now, because I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, 
Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you do, that did not know you shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And these verses are saying, I, I've made a covenant and I will fulfill it because I love you. So come to me. Be part of that covenant. Let me satisfy. And he goes on to describe, actually the bigger picture is I'm calling nations to myself. Come be part of what I'm doing. Paul, as, as he's reflecting back on this in Acts 13, he ties the resurrection to this promise and to nations coming to him. And he quotes it and says, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. He's quoting verse 3 there to Jesus saying, You rose from the dead and so there's life with you. There's satisfying life. Summarizing verses 1 through 5. God is the only one who satisfies. Crave Him. Come to Him. Seek Him instead of the idol of satisfying self. How do we do that? It, it means intentionally saying, how can I, can I sell myself out for God? How can I be sold out for God? How can I be dedicated to what He's doing? Versus how much time do I think, how can I meet my needs? How can I satisfy my desires? How can I get so-and-so to go on a date with me? How can I buy this? How can I be happy? All of those take time away from, how can I do God's work? I have never met someone who gave up everything for the work of God who regretted it. Because in the end, they realized giving up everything for the work of God is the only thing that's really fulfilling. And I'm not saying you all have to go out and sell your houses and your cars. And, but it's the attitude of all of my stuff, everything I have is dedicated to God, and then He satisfies. I can stop trying to satisfy my own joy and happiness. I can serve God and let Him do it. But that means letting go. That means trusting Him. That means doing something that's hard instead of something I like because it's right. And trusting that God will satisfy because I did that. See, my desires is the junk food. It's the donuts with the sugar. His ways and His coming into relationship with Him and tasting His water and His bread and following His way is truly satisfying food. How do we do this? We need to cultivate a thirst for God. Cultivate a desire to be in His Word. And, and you might say, well, I, I don't feel that today. First thing you do is say, God, I don't feel that today. Please give me this desire for you. God can handle your honesty. Just read Psalms. God can handle it when we say, I feel dry. I'm not thirsting for God. And, and, and so cultivate and ask God for that thirst. Second way to do that is realize that nothing else is meeting the thirst. You, can, you work out, spend an hour or two, you come. Is it really the Coke you want at that point? You've been sweating. You want water, right? Or Gatorade. You need something that actually meets the need. So am I, am I getting rid of those things that falsely meet that need 
So I start to feel a real need for God. Then I thirst for Him. Am I stepping out in faith and doing the things that that He asks me? Then I'll thirst for Him. If I swallow hard and go to my neighbor and say hi, and eventually tell them about the Gospel and this incredible news, and it can be the hardest thing I do, but that creates a thirst for God because now I'm seeking the things that truly satisfy. Cultivate a thirst for God. The phrase that would be so hard to say here that I I think is so pertinent, I need God. I need God. And it sounds really simple, right? But it's really hard to admit. I don't like saying I need anyone. But when we come and say, I need God, we start to crush the idol of satisfying self and thirst for God. Isaiah goes on in verse 6. Next paragraph, and again, he's, he's calling people to, to seek and come to God, and he's going to deal with the idol of intellect and knowledge and pride here. And point number two, crush the idol of intellect by humbly seeking God's immeasurably greater ways. I know, there's a lot of words that I just couldn't get rid of anymore. Crush the idol of intellect, of knowledge, of pride by humbly seeking God's immeasurably, immeasurably greater ways. Another way of putting that is since God's ways are perfect, greater, and guaranteed, seek Him instead of my own ways. And he's dealing with that idol of intelligence, of knowledge, of pride. Now again, is it wrong to be intelligent? No. Is it wrong to study and do well in school? No. But when that becomes an idol, when we start to elevate that and find our worth in that and find satisfaction in that, that's a problem because it's replaced God. Let's read these verses together. Start with 6 and 7. Seek the Lord or seek Yahweh while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that He may have compassion on him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. In verses 6 and 7 you see four commands right in a row. Seek, call, forsake, and return. Seek, call, forsake, and return. If we had to say, how do we seek, or how do we come to a God that satisfies? These are the four things. The first is to seek. In verse 6, seek Yahweh while he may be found. Come with diligence to where the Lord may be found. So seeking is actually looking with intentionality. Now, we all sometimes look for things around the house, and if you're not moving anything to find it, and you're just sort of scanning a room, that's not seeking. That's browsing, right? And so when your kids, moms, dads, you tell your kids, go find such and such, they browse. And you walk in and you seek a little bit and you find it. This is seeking. It says seek God. Be willing to do the work with determination, with commitment, to long for the Lord's presence and fellowship. If you have to think of a word, think intentionality. Am I intentional to seek after God? To find His truth in God's Word? To be with His people? To be under godly teaching? That is teaching from the Bible? A couple of implications of that, um, that first phrase. Seek the Lord while He may be found. One, if you're thinking through just, just thoughts, one is that He can be found, right? 
The assumption there is he can be found. We have a God that doesn't want to hide from us. He's given us his word to reveal himself to us. He can be found. But the other implication of that phrase is while he may be found. And we don't know how long we'll have that opportunity. We don't know how long until our life here ends here on earth. And we've lost that opportunity to seek him. We don't know how long it is before he returns. Seek while he may be found. Think of the parable of the Great Supper in Luke 14. And the invitation to the supper was given out by the master. And and all of the friends basically denied, right? I have to wash my hair. I have to prune my vine. I have to change the air in my tires. I don't know what it was back then, but they had all these, these wonderful excuses. And so the master took the invitation away from them and gave them to people that were open to it. And at some point, when we deny God long enough, we sear our hearts and we don't turn to Him. Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him is the next phrase, the next command. Call upon Him while He is near. And call is used two different ways in the Scripture. One is to acknowledge God and worship. Call on the name of the Lord. Another is to acknowledge Him and need His help. Call for His help. It's a parallel to seek here. And the idea is to seek God with determined diligence and call on Him for His help. Put ourselves under His care. And then verse 7 is just as important for what's needed to salvation. Forsake and return. Let the wicked forsake his way. Leave the old ways, the sin, to turn around. This is, these two words come together to make repentance. And we talk about you have to repent for salvation, and we call people to repent. It's forsaking the old ways, turning away from sin, and then returning or turning to God. It's always both parts. And the first part here is forsake his way, forsake the sin. It's being able to say, I'm wrong. Can you guys say that with me? I'm wrong. It's hard. That's what repentance means. Even as believers, when we sin, we're to confess our sins to the Lord. We're to repent, go to Him and say, I was wrong. I hate that word. But this is how you seek and call. This is how we follow God. We have to be willing to say that we're wrong and then return is the next part of that verse. So let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh. And that's turning back, that's repenting and coming to God, away from sin to God. But then look at the results. Look and smile that He may have compassion on Him, that God may have compassion on us. And to our God, that he, for He will abundantly pardon. And He gives two, two results of repentance here. Of saying, I'm wrong, I sinned, returning to God, you are right, I am wrong. And the two sides here are compassion, or sometimes it's translated mercy. Compassion and pardon. Forgiveness. Oh, village, whether we're not saved, whether we're saved and we've fallen into sin, God 
wants to bring us back to himself. He wants to just pour that mercy on us. He wants to forgive us our sins. As 1 John 1.9 says, but we have to repent and turn to him. It's free, but it's costly. Catch that word right before pardon. And this is a beautiful promise. For he will abundantly pardon. In verses 1 through 5, it's talking about that it's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. Here he's saying he just wants to pour his forgiveness on you. It, it, it speaks to the extensiveness of his forgiveness. Every sin, everything we confess to him. One author said he does much in respect to forgiving. Oh, that is so comforting. He does much in respect to forgiving. See, salvation is dependent on repentance, but it's a promise. It's a promise. Now catch a couple things out of verse 7 because it will tie into verse 8. Forsake His way, my plans, my way I think it should be done, my wisdom, my intelligence... And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. So we're dealing with this whole area of life and turn to God. And 8 and 9 give us why we can do that. It sort of just drives it home. For my thoughts, and this is God speaking, for my thoughts, oh, they're not your thoughts. Neither are, are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What a beautiful description of God's knowledge and His wisdom. He is completely other. He is so far above us. Here He's just using the description of heavens to the earth higher than your ways. But He's tying to verse 7 what we're repenting of. And He's saying, why not repent? Sort of the same as verses 1-5. through why would, you, would, why would you be stupid and hold to your own ways? My ways are so much bigger than yours. My understanding is so much greater than yours. But we hold to our pride. And we hold to our intellect. And we know we're right. And God's saying, no, you're not. You're wrong. Trust me. Trust my ways. In theology, these two verses speak to the transcendence of God. And what we mean by that is He is completely other. He is so far above us that it is immeasurably above us. But yet we know when we study the attributes of God, He's also imminent or near us because He has chosen to humble Himself and come near us. But here we see His transcendence. He is above us in what He thinks. He is above us in how He thinks. He is above us in His plans and in the foresight of His plans and knowing where the plans will end. How could we not trust Him? A couple different ways this really affects the discussion. One is that His plan of salvation is something we never would have dreamt up. This goes back to Isaiah 53. His plan of salvation is to send His Son to be near us, to become a human to be tortured and crucified on a cross so he could take the penalty that I deserve? Who comes up with that? A transcendent, beautiful God who loves us and has promised to love us. 
His plan is better than mine even when I don't understand it. His commands are for my good even when something else looks so good and right. This reminds us that it may not be about us. It may be about His plan. It is about His plan and His work. Verses 7, 8, and 9 reminds us that He's able to show love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness on the wicked while we struggle with that. God is so much greater. Our ways lead to sin and bondage. His ways to what really satisfies. Think, spend some time this week thinking of how great God is. Go out at night and look at the star. (laughs) Or go to the mountains and look at the stars. And be amazed. Pull up pictures if you have to. Sometimes I read articles from space.com just of how grand space is because it reminds me of how incredible God is. And He created all of this and it came from His mind and His thoughts. Because then I start to have the right attitude and, and not that He wants to squash us like a bug, but an attitude that says He is so much greater and I am so small. That's healthy. That's humility. And only His ways satisfy. We need to cultivate humility and trust through an awe of God. Cultivate humility and trust through an awe of God. And that's what He's saying here. Be humble, follow God's ways, and then He leads us to the awe of God. It's amazing. One of the other side things that this does, this really helps us how we relate to each other. Because oftentimes our issues with each other is because we think we're right And we think that we know more and we somehow are superior to someone else. Well, here's the picture. If there were two little ants on this platform and I'm looking down at them like this or maybe like this, not that God's waiting to crush us. And if I could hear them talking and one of them saying, I know more than you. That's ridiculous, right? That's what we do when we think our way is best, when we think our thoughts is best, because God is so much bigger than us, and when we try to force that on each other, oh no, we should be pointing each other to God. I don't need to tell you how to live. It's why I always want our preaching to come from God's Word. So it's Him, His wisdom, His knowledge telling you. My pride and my intellect is junk food. It's the donuts. Seeing God, seeing my need for God, pursuing His ways is the rich, satisfying food. And I had you say I was wrong. I want you to say one other phrase that comes out of 8 and 9. I don't know. I don't know. Because we have to attack our sense that we know everything, that we're right, that we have our, our plans and our ways to say my, my thoughts aren't His thoughts. My ways aren't His ways. So how does God accomplish this in our lives? When we come to the last four verses here, verses 10 through 13. Point number three, God's Word will accomplish His work of incredible salvation. God's Word will accomplish His work of incredible salvation. See, it's not me doing it because I don't know. And I'm wrong sometimes. And my way doesn't satisfy. I need God. So it's His Word that accomplishes His work of salvation. 
joyfully submit to it instead of submitting to or instead of clinging to the idol of control. We've talked about the idol of desires. We've talked about the idol of intellect and now the idol of control. Anyone here struggle with the idol of control? I do. I was telling the elders this morning that they all step on my toes and this one the most. Because this directly says it's not us that accomplish it. It's not my work. Let's read verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Which, praise God, I find that incredibly comforting. But he's using a picture here of rain and snow coming down. Remember, arid desert. Remember, not much growing. And so when water comes, it, could, it was essential for things to grow. And God's word is described as, as coming down on barren land and he causes greenery and lushness and, and life. He satisfies. This all goes back to, to the first section too. He creates the plants. He causes the seed. He created the seed. He causes it to grow. But then he, he uses that to say, this is what my word's like. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish what I purpose. It shall succeed. And this is where we we get the doctrine of the effectiveness of God's Word. That it is powerful. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning thoughts and intentions from the heart. Water comes, causes growth. It accomplishes its purpose. God's Word comes. And that is the tool for changing us, for transforming us, for helping us walk with Him, bringing us to salvation, to repentance, and then helping us walk with Him after that. So when's the last time you opened it? Other than this morning. When's the last time we were in it? If this is what God uses to accomplish His purposes, if I'm not in it, I'm saying I don't need what God uses to accomplish His purposes. Steps on my toes. Because I have my plans. And I have my purposes. And if I want it done, I'll do it myself. And God said, this is the tool to combat sin. In Psalm 1, 19, 11, How will a young man keep his way pure? In verse 9 and 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is the tool to keep from sin. It contains everything we need for godly living. And verse 11 reminds us of that. Verse 12 and 13 give us a beautiful promise. If we submit to God's Word if we follow God's Word. And here some have thought, well, maybe this refers to returning to Jerusalem. But really, almost every scholar said this is, this is referring to the new heavens and the new earth. This is revelation, guys. This is our future. This is the joy that is set before us. 
for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And you can, some of you that have been here a long time, we used to sing this song, right? I'm not going to sing. I was about to, but no. Go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth singing. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And this is for those that are submitting with joy, that are coming under God's word. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Not that you'll lead forth in peace. You'll be led by the power of God's word. It's attacking our idol of control. But it's beautiful. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing. The trees of the field will clap their hands. And so it's saying, trust my word. Follow the commands. This is where life is. This is where you'll truly be satisfied with living water and living bread. Verse 13 reminds us again of the new heavens and the new earth, but it should also remind us of Genesis 3. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. It will be about His reputation, about His glory. An everlasting sign that, will not, that shall not be cut off. And he here is, is, I believe, directly referencing Genesis 3 and the curse. Remember the curse to Adam? It is now with, with toil that you will till the ground. Hard work because thorns will come up. Briars will come up. And if you remember our timeline, because of our sin, the earth was corrupted and tainted with the fall. But at the end of time, God is going to reverse that through the work of Jesus Christ. He's going to create a new heaven and new earth. Invite all that follow Him in. And the curse will be done and overturned. And sin will be no more. And every impact of sin on your life and on my life and those that follow Him will be reversed. This is a great way of expressing that. All for His renown. All for His glory. If we submit to Him and come under Him. You know, how do, what, what do we see with this section? And how do we come to God and seek God? We have to cultivate a joyful submission to the Word. You've got to be in it. You've got to read it. Devour it. Even Leviticus. There's great parts of Leviticus. Devour it though. Enjoy it. Submit to it. It's hard when we have our own desires. We have our own purposes. Junk food is my control. That's the donut. I'll do what I want. I'll make my plans. I can make this happen. The rich food is following His Word and acknowledging that this is where power comes from. The phrase I put in your notes is, I can't make this happen. If I'm attacking this idol, I need to be able to say, I can't make this happen, which is really hard for someone that loves control. But God can. God can. The phrases we see that we said, I need God. He is enough. I was wrong. I've sinned. I don't know. I need His ways. I need His plans. I can't make this happen. I need to trust Him. And we start to fight the idols of self-centeredness in this world and we turn to God and repent. 
but, but as we end, I want to make the same plea to you. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him. Forsake our sin. Turn to God. See, if you're struggling with a God-sized hole, a God-shaped hole, and you're trying all kinds of other things to meet those needs, this morning, you can turn to God and say, I have sinned. I was wrong. I need you because I can't save myself and I can't do it on my own. Every one of those phrases is essential for salvation. And all you have to do is acknowledge, God, you are God. I am a sinner. I've rebelled against you. I repent of that sin and I give my life to you and I turn to you. And then all these promises apply to you. But we don't do it for what we get. We do it for this rich relationship as sons and daughters of the King. And if that makes sense at all, talk to me afterwards. I'll hang out up here. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to one of the other pastors. Pastor Andrew or Pastor Andrew. And um, we'd love to talk to you about this because this is the most incredible thing in the world to turn to God. And for us that are believers, how are we doing with those idols of self? Are we weeding them out? Are we stamping them out? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Lord God, challenge us to pursue your thoughts, to pursue your ways this week. Stamp out anything that's more important than you, any idolatry. May we be your people. In Jesus' name.